Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the day of the first week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, be not, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where the, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the, mountain, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you that you have promised that when two or three gather in your name, that you are in their midst. And so we know that your spirit is here with us. And we pray that your spirit may speak to us through your word. We do pray for the, for the children on camp and the leaders. Pray for their safe return this afternoon. And then, Lord, we want to especially thank you for Eleanor. We want to thank you for all that she's meant to us and all that she's done over these many years. We thank you for, for who she is and for what she's done. And we pray for, Lord, for her, Lord, as she returns to Uganda pray your special hand upon her as she resettles. And then, Lord, we do pray that together we may help grow, explore, and grow the Gospel Coalition uh, throughout East Africa. And we do just commit her and commend her to you. And now, Lord, speak to us through your word, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, Kate, who's just been up here, as you all know, is a great, great fan of Chelsea. So I googled uh, Chelsea Football Club membership, and uh, I was told on, uh, 
on the website that they have five tiers of membership. All of them have priority ticket access. One of the tiers uh, is called the hospitality season ticket. The season ticket, uh, the season tickets for 2019, 2020 have been sold out, which is just as well because the most expensive is on the east stand, and it will cost you 9,125 pounds. So that's about 200,000 rand. So it's quite, it's quite obvious that the purpose of the Chelsea Football Club is its members. In total contrast, Jesus tells us that the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit for those who are not members. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now what we have in front of us here, as you well know, if you missed any of the other talks, you can pick them up on the website. But what we have here is a biography of Jesus by Matthew. Matthew was called Levi. He was a tax collector. Jesus called him to follow him. You remember that, Matthew chapter 9. So what we actually have here is the eyewitness record of one of the 12 called Matthew. And he's telling us what Jesus did, what he said. He's telling us about his life, his death, his resurrection. These are the source documents of the Christian faith. Obviously, chapter 28 is the culmination It's the climax. So let's quickly just cast our eyes over chapter 28, verse 1. Verse 1 to 10, he deals there with the resurrection of Christ. So he describes the resurrection. And it's quite clear that it was historical. It was physical. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. No, it was something that actually happened. Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Verse 5, the angel said, said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to, his, ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So in greater Christendom, there have always been people who have denied the supernatural, who have denied the resurrection, the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. But Matthew is quite clear. It's totally unambiguous. It was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. See, the Bible has no embarrassment to speak about the natural and the supernatural. Because, of course, God is active in both. God created both. So what we have here is natural, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And obviously it is supernatural. It is God acting outside of the normal laws of nature. Notice the response to the resurrection. And uh, we see it there in verse in verse 8, where the woman, notice there, they, they uh, went from the tomb with fear and great joy. It was a mixed reaction. You get the same mixed reaction in verse 17. And the disciples saw him. They worshipped him, but some doubted. 
Now, of course, Matthew's only telling us what we know. There's always a mixed response to the person of Jesus, to, to the Son of God, to the Son of Man. There'll always be a mixed response. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, he said, Jesus produced mainly three effects in the Gospels. Fear, hatred, and worship. There is no trace of mild disapproval. End of quote. How, how true that is. Perhaps this afternoon you're having lunch with your family, and uh, perhaps they, they, um, they ask you what you did this morning. You say you went to church, and um, you heard this great preacher, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, some will agree with you because they worship Jesus. But the others, there's hatred or there's fear. And either it comes out in total silence or it comes out in aggression. You know what I'm talking about. That's what happens when people are confronted with Jesus. And Matthew reminds us not to be surprised when there's this mixed response. All right, let's have a look at our passage, verse 8 to 20. These are the last words of Jesus. They are a call to discipleship. So if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, and no doubt there are some here this morning and some listening on the website who are not yet disciples of Jesus, well, this is what it means. You'll understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, and I'm sure that's the vast majority here this morning, here's our job description. This is what we ought to be doing if we are disciples. So we're going to have a look at three things. Uh, first of all, the great claim, then the great commission, and then the great comfort. So there are three principles, and let me dig in straight away. The great claim. So here we have verse 18. It's after the death of Christ. It's after the resurrection of Christ. And he makes the greatest of all claims that have ever been made by a sane person. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's extraordinary for any human being to make that kind of statement. He's not talking about power. He's not talking about brute force. He's talking about authority. He has authority over everything over which authority can be exercised. Everything in heaven and earth, meaning the whole universe. My dear friends, no... No human being in their right mind would ever make a claim like that. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. I have all authority. Now for Matthew it's kind of obvious because, because he's been telling that, uh, he's, been, he's been telling us throughout the gospel of this authority of Jesus. So if you haven't read the gospel of Matthew, you need to do that. So in Matthew chapter 1, I'll just give you a taste of it. Matthew chapter 1, the long-awaited king has been born. The son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the son of David. Matthew 2, the wise men, the Gentile wise men, realize that Jesus is the expected king. So they bow down and worship him. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist announces that Jesus is the long-awaited king. So repent. Matthew 5, Jesus goes up the mountain and teaches as the long-awaited king, the new Moses. Matthew 8 to 10, Jesus chose his authority over the supernatural world. He casts out demons. He shows his power, his authority over the natural world by healing the sick. 
shows his power over the physical world by calming a storm. So you get the point. It's a theme that's been running throughout the gospel. God's long-awaited king has arrived. And now he tells us that he has all authority. Now that's especially clear here in these last two chapters of Matthew 20, 27 and 28, where the king has conquered our two great enemies, sin and death. Imagine that. He's conquered our two great enemies, sin and death. So in his death, he died in my place. He quenched the wrath of God that I deserve. He was my substitute. He conquered sin. In his resurrection, he conquers our final enemy, which is death. And those who trust and submit to King Jesus will also be raised from the dead. So the meaning of the resurrection here in chapter 28 is not primarily that we're important to God, though we are. It's not primarily that we will have life after death, though we will. It's not primarily that we can go to Jesus with all our needs, though we can. No, the primary purpose of the resurrection is to show us that God has given Jesus all authority over all the universe, over life, over death, over the past, over the present, over the future. His authority is unrestricted. It's unqualified. It's unending. It's universal. It's over all people, in all places, at all times, for all eternity. And I've run out of breath. What an extraordinary claim. What an extraordinary person. Now let me try and apply that just, just personally in a couple of ways. And then we'll come to the Great Commission. If Jesus has authority over everything, it means that everyone without exception will bow the knee before him, either willingly or unwillingly. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Nietzsche, Richard Dawkins, Chairman Mao, Donald Trump, he has all authority. Everyone will ultimately bow the knee, willingly or unwillingly, to King Jesus. It means that even if the laws of the land in some countries you are disallowed, it is illegal to share the gospel. Royden shared last week of this English policeman if he spoke about Jesus, he would lose his job. Well, Jesus tells us, whatever the laws of the land say, and, and you need wisdom. So I'm not saying the guy must lose his job. But it doesn't matter what the laws of the land are. It is our privilege and our duty to declare the kingship of King Jesus. We can knock on any door. We can enter any neighborhood, be it Kabul or Cairo or Kailicha. Because he has all authority. Matthew is not into multi-service, multi-faith services. Uh, everyone will bow the knee. Doesn't matter what your religion, what your creed. Ultimately, you will bow the knee because Jesus has all authority. There is no way where King Jesus is not Lord. Here's another. Here's another application. I think too often we. We listen to ourselves more than we speak to ourselves. So there are things going on in our head, perhaps unjust things, not perhaps unjust things have happened to all of us 
injustices, abuse, exploitation. And so sometimes our heads are full of hatred and anger and bitterness and resentment. And sometimes it can start controlling your life instead of remembering and telling yourself, Jesus is Lord. Jesus will see that justice is done. Jesus will see that all the wrongs are righted. We don't have to live with anger or bitterness. Or perhaps, or, perhaps, or perhaps you've allowed Satan, and we don't need to fear Satan. We don't need to fear evil spirits, and we don't need to fear the ancestors. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. But sometimes Satan will whisper in our ear and say, do you think God's going to use you? Remember what you did. Remember how bad it is. Perhaps you broke promises. Perhaps you broke vows, and it's caused enormous pain. Enormous suffering. Perhaps you committed, committed adultery. Perhaps you had an abortion. Perhaps you caused someone to have an abortion. Perhaps your actions, your, 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 what you said, have, have caused great pain and suffering. And so Satan whispers in your ear and says, well, God can't use you. What do you think? Do you think God's going to work through you? Do you actually think you're a Christian? No, Jesus is Lord. He died for our sins. And therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God uses broken people like you and me. God called broken people like you and me to take the gospel and make disciples of all nations. We need to, we need to remember the authority of Christ even over my brokenness. He's Lord over your fears, your doubts, your anxieties. He's Lord over your financial fears and struggles. He's Lord over the fact whether you're going to get married or not. He has authority over whether you will have children or not. He has authority over the medical results you're waiting for. He has authority over your concerns for your family, your children, your future. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so we free. We can rest in him. What an extraordinary claim. It's not up to luck or fate. It's not up to the politics and economics of our world or the viruses of our world. No, Christ is Lord. Christ is King. So I find my peace, my security, my purpose in him. Secondly, let's have a look at the Great Commission, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the first thing that we need to notice is that Jesus didn't just speak to the eleven. It's not just for the eleven. It's not just for pastors and ministers and missionaries. No, it's for all of us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You see that in the book of Acts, as the gospel is spread through ordinary believers and Christians, men and women. So you can't become a Christian and then say, well, I'm all right, Jack. Let the rest go to hell. You may not say that, but sometimes that's almost the assumption. No, 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 said Jesus. 
I've saved you, I've rescued you, in order that you may be my disciples, in order that you may take this treasure, this antidote to death, to those who don't know Christ. I'm sure you noticed that verse 19 followed verse 18. It's kind of obvious. Precisely because Christ has authority over all heaven and earth, the entire universe, every inch of creation, because of his absolute authority, he has the right to say, go and make disciples not only of Jews, but of all the nations. So the Greek word there is ethne, from which we get our word ethnicity. So he's saying, go and make disciples of all ethnic groups, all people groups. And my dear friend, there are still thousands and thousands of people, groups around the world who have no clear gospel witness in their midst. There's a great book which I'm going to show you called Operation World. And you can Google that. It's, it's a wonderful book which covers every country in the world. It gives you the politics, the economics, the population, the literacy. And then it tells you where that country is spiritually. And it tells you which people groups in that country still need the gospel. And so you pray for them. So it's a great tool for prayer. And it's a great tool for us to understand we are here to reach all nations. So all over the world there are people groups that are hardly touched by the gospel. So, so in Europe, it may be Muslims in French ghettos, maybe gypsies in Spain, maybe Orthodox Catholics in Italy. It may be, it may be German academics in universities. It may be Geordies in Newcastle. Here in Gauteng, there will be people groups where there's no credible witness. There's no church amongst them. It may be Somalis in Tembisa, maybe Pakistanis in, in, in Hillbrow. It may be Muslims in Lenz. Half of Zimbabwe live in Madrid. Zimbos, we love you. Every generation of Christians and churches have a duty and privilege to obey this commandment. That's precisely why we as a church, since we started in 1994, part of who we are is to reach out. That's what we do. We plant churches. We've got ministries in Tembisa with a school. We, we've started churches, denominations in Mozambique and DRC and, and Zimbabwe. Uh, that's why we're involved with Gospel Coalition Africa. Why? Because we have a duty as a Christian church, a church, church family. You're part of that to reach out and take the gospel. Of course there's blood, sweat, and tears. Of course it's not easy. Make no mistakes. Nothing is easy. And yet that's our calling. That's what makes us healthy as Christians. You have a very unhealthy church when it's only devoted to itself. Let me tell you that. There's a lot of gossiping, fighting, politics. That's what happens. It's when you're outward looking and God's people unconsciously know my little gripes and grumbles with Martin are not all that important because of what we're trying to do. You have a healthy church. When you're not looking inwards, you're looking outwards. It's the mark of a healthy church. Back to verse 19. What is a disciple of Christ and how do you make a disciple of Christ? He says, there go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now notice just by the way, it's not converts, but disciples. So a disciple is someone who has trusted in Christ. They're a follower of Christ. So you not only become a convert, but you become a disciple. It's much, that's the beginning. It becomes your way of life. It becomes, 
It becomes your purpose in life. That's why you live, to follow Christ. So, so sometimes people think of Christianity is that Jesus has now come into my life. So Jesus is part of the agenda of my life. You know agendas. You'll have some tomorrow morning. Let me not mess up your Sunday. Okay? Number one, welcome. Number two, minutes of the previous meeting. Number three, matters arising from previous meeting. Number four, now that you've become a Christian, you say Jesus. Number five, family. My dear friend, that's wrong. Jesus wrote the agenda. Jesus is the agenda. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so there are two things. I was going to do what Mrs. Mrs. Pelosi did. This is your agenda with Jesus. No, he wrote the agenda. He is the agenda. Okay, two things, quickly. Two things about discipleship. They're quite clear. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, baptism, as we know, it's not the water that does anything. It's not magic. It's not baptism that makes you a Christian. No, baptism is an external sign of an internal work of God. Remember that? So when we have people coming up for baptism, we have adults who have come to faith in Christ, we have Christian parents who are bringing their children for baptism, what they are saying is we belong to Christ, and we belong to his family, and we are making a public confession that we are part of the family of God. So conversion is private, baptism is public. It's the first step in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, which is belonging to the family of Christ. So you can't be a Christian in isolation. Baptism is a sign. It's an external sign. It's a public sign. It's a family sign. I'm part of the family of God. I'm part of the people of God. So my dear friends, the first step in becoming a disciple of Christ is associating with these people. This is now my family. And by the way, you can't choose your family. We stuck with each other. This is my family. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you notice, just notice there quickly. He doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. No, the name, singular. We have one God. And his name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. So the first step in becoming a disciple of Christ is to publicly commit yourself to Christ and his people. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. So call Helen and find out when the next date for baptism is. And we have a class. And you need to publicly affirm, this is my faith. This is my family. This is who I'm going to follow. So there's the first step. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there we have a wonderful reference, obviously, of the Trinity. One name, one God, and his name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when people say, I believe in God, just ask them, which God are they talking about? Because the only God that there is is called Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are no other gods. They are imaginations.
All right, the second thing in becoming a disciple and making disciples is teaching them all I have, all I have commanded you. It's simple there. You become part of the body of Christ, part of the family of God, and secondly, you teach them all that I have commanded you. So there's the key mark of a disciple. We hear and we obey. We hear and we observe. That's why we come here Sunday by Sunday. You are taught from God's word. That's what we do with our teenagers. That's what we do with our children. In actual fact, they'll be doing the same passage this morning. So when you're driving home, ask them what they learned. Ask them, what is a disciple? And if they give you the wrong answer, tell me, and I'll go and check up on the Sunday school teacher. All right, we need to observe. We need to hear, we need to observe, and then we need to obey. That's the nature of a disciple. We students who actually put into practice what we learn. Now, an important question is, Martin, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I become a disciple maker? How do I share the gospel? Because many of you have read and heard this passage many times. And actually, what you're saying in the back of your mind is you are saying, Martin, you're just making me feel more guilty. Well, let me give you some personality styles from the New Testament. Because God uses each one of us with our personality to share the gospel. He doesn't want you to be what you're not. He wants to use you as you are. And, and so we look in the New Testament and God uses different personality styles to share the gospel. So let's have a look at those styles. Callum, let's have the slide on the, on the screen. There's six stars. I'm sure there are more. But God wants to use you as you are to share the gospel. Now, sharing the gospel ultimately has to do with words. So the bottom line is words. The words of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Christ. But God will use us in different ways because we are different kinds of people. And sometimes we'll use a different style in a different situation. So let me quickly show you six different styles. Intellectual style, Paul. Pick that up in Acts 17. When you look at the verbs that Luke gives us, writing about Paul, Paul reasoned, he explained, he proved, he proclaimed, he taught, he preached. That is an intellectual style. Someone like Ravi Zacharias is a great example of that. Or Lee Strobel, or Lee Martin, right in front of us here. Right? It's someone who reasons with someone. Someone who loves doing that. Another style is a testimonial style, the blind man in John chapter 9. Now you must go and read John chapter 9 because Jesus heals this blind man. He's blind. Jesus does a miracle. He can see. The Pharisees are furious. And they start questioning the blind man. Who is it that healed you? Is he God? Is he the Messiah? Did he sin? And they go to him two or three times. And in each case, the blind man says, I don't know who he is. I don't know where he comes from. But what I do know is I was blind and now I can see. And then they ask him some more questions. He says, I, I don't know, but what I know is he was blind and now I can see. Now, there's some of us who are not so good or quick with words. So you think of the answer 24 hours later and it's too late. 
But you know how it is. You're at Sunday lunch, you're at Sunday braai, in the newspapers there's been some bizarre pastor doing some bizarre thing, and then someone has a go at you and says, you Christians. And then they start asking you some hard questions, or they make some hard statements, and you don't know how to answer them. And let me say to you, that's okay. That's okay. You can be like the blind man. You can say to them, listen, I don't know what the answer is. There are answers. I just don't know what they are. But I can tell you, I was blind and now I can see. That's how I was. And now the Lord has given me peace and freedom and joy. I can't answer all your questions. Come and talk to Royden. Come and talk to Lee. But once I was blind and now I can see. Third style. Invitational style, the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. You remember that after the Lord had spoken to her, she said and went back to her village and said, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And many believed. So what does she do? She invites people to come and see Jesus. Now we have lots of people here in the church who, who do that. We have a special event, a special occasion, and you invite people. You uh, speak to them during the week. You invite them. Now, I know how it works. Nine times out of ten, they say they're coming. No, eight times out of ten, they say, no, I can't make it this weekend. And then there's some who say, yes, I can. And then at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning, you get a WhatsApp which says, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. So I understand that, but there are many of you who do that. Perhaps you feel you can't make a clear explanation of the gospel. I'm sure you can. But a wonderful way to do evangelism and make disciples is to invite people, and that's what the Samaritan woman did. Number four, there's a friendship style or a bride style. So Matthew, Jesus calls him to follow him, and Matthew immediately has a party. He has a bride. He invites all his friends through his friendship that he draws people to Christ. Number five, a confrontational style. Peter Acts chapter 2. He's in your face. Some of you remember Rory Bell. Rory, if you're listening in the UK, we love you. But Rory was in your face. Okay? Give him 10 seconds and he's at your throat. And that's Rory. He's great. And God uses him. But uh, most of us aren't like that. But some of us are. And that's the style God wants you to use. Or a serving style. Last one. Tabitha and Dorcas. Tabitha, also called Dorcas. You know what she did? She served people. She loved people. So she was the one, or this is the kind of person, when the new neighbors next door, you're the one who goes and takes a cake to them. You're the one at the office who stays behind to help the, the new apprentice uh, um, get into some or other problem, help them, because they're battling. You're the person who says, well, uh, I know you're under pressure right now. Uh, why don't you let the kids sleep over? We'll just take them in. I'll go pick up the kids. Don't you worry about it. You're not feeling well. So it's through our service, through our love, that slowly people come to know we're Christians. And through that we share the gospel. 
So when you look at the when you look at the New Testament, when you look at that, six different styles, we all different personalities, and sometimes one style is more appropriate at a certain situation than another. But we don't all have to be upfront. No, God will use us as we are. But just remember, the bottom line is words. So we need to build bridges, but we also need to cross them. So too often we build bridges with people and then we don't cross the bridge. In the end, it is words about Jesus. Lastly, time is gone. The great comfort, verse 20b. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As I mentioned before, Matthew is convinced of the deity of Christ. So he's actually bracketed this gospel affirming the deity of Christ. Christ is God, which means he's omnipresent. So chapter 1, verse 23, in the birth narrative, we are told that his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then chapter 28, verse 20, verse, verse 20, Emmanuel himself says, I'm with you always. What an extraordinary thought that the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, the lord of the earth, the king of God's kingdom, the judge of all things, the one who has conquered sin and death, says to you and me, and by the way, the you there in verse 20 is plural, it's to all of us, that I am with you always. It's quite a strange statement because he's just about to leave them. But of course he's talking about his spirit, that he will send his spirit. And when you are converted, God places his spirit within you. He's with us always. But especially, if you look at the context, when we are making disciples. Wouldn't it be a great thing if all of us made a list of five people? The five most wanted people. Think of family, friends, colleagues, your past, your present. Five people. You write their names down. Most wanted people. And you start praying for, for them every day, starting today. Lord, will you work in their lives? Will you open an opportunity where I can share something of my faith with them? Let's pray together. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, there may be someone here this morning who has never bowed the knee Yet they know that by your spirit you have been pressing in upon their hearts and minds today. Lord, will you help them to say, oh God, will you make me a disciple? Lord, we thank you. That's all we need to say. Lord, have mercy on me. Will you make me a disciple? And Father, for those of us who are disciples, will you help us once again to understand what the agenda of life is? It's not about us, it's about Christ. 
and growing his kingdom, wherever you've placed us. And help us, Lord, in our words, our behavior, our love, our care for other people. Help us to, to in one way or the other, share the love of God. Will you use us as a church that many people and many nations may come to know Christ? We pray this in his name and for his sake.